This is Space Waffles, a Star Wars podcast. Welcome to Space Waffles. I'm Arzu, and today we have a very special episode. Um, Candace and I were lucky enough a couple weeks ago to speak to uh, author Daniel Jose Older, who I'm sure a lot of y'all know for The High Republic, for Last Shot, um, just for his general delightful Twitter presence. Um, so we got the chance to speak to him about his new novel, Ballad and Dagger, which is out today uh, under the Rick Riordan Presents umbrella. It's an absolutely fantastic blend of like of fantasy of magic of romance of what it means to belong to your community it was a yeah it was an absolutely fantastic read and we were lucky enough to speak to daniel about it so that is what y'all are going to hear today so thank you for listening and enjoy so daniel thank you so much for joining us today it is my pleasure it's great to be here so we are here today to talk about your new book coming out um, today, actually, uh, Ballad and Dagger, the first book in the Outlaw Saints duology, right? Two books. That's right. That's right. All right. So we are super excited to talk about it. I absolutely loved it. I already screamed at you about it in the DMs, but... <laughs> yes. Thank you. That, that meant um, a lot to me. I appreciate it. So to kick things off, so we're going to keep this sort of spoiler light. So if you are listening to this and you are keen to read it, don't worry. Um, but a lot of this book has to do sort of with the lost island of San Madrigal. So my first question is, what was the inspiration for the island of San Madrigal? So there were a lot of things, um, obviously, because there's a, there's a lot of cultures on the island and there's that piece of it. Right. So uh, right off the bat, it's an island that was mostly full of uh, Sephardic Jews escaping the Inquisition of Santeros from Cuba and of pirates. And. I can't tell you exactly why that combination came to be exactly the way it did, except that some of them are parts of my life and some of them are things I'm fascinated by. Obviously I'm a pirate and I just, uh, the, but it's the idea of all these different elements being thrown together, which in truth is like all cultures, right? Have like this element of combination and, and mixed up things, but, um, some, in some, it stands out more than others. And, uh, it's something I love about myself, my own upbringing, and I also know that it's something that comes with a lot of carnage and complexity and all the things that are good for stories, right, and for world building and everything else. So all those things were in my mind. And then the other kind of ingredient besides those three main cultures that it's part of and besides kind of Caribbean history and the history of of conquest and inquisition and everything else, um, there's a neighborhood in Brooklyn um, out in East New York that that I used to work in on the ambulance and I would just be there a lot. And um, they, they're just full of life, of culture, of bakeries, music, just amazing food and a lot of different Latino cultures there. And it was a place where I felt very much at home, but was very much an outsider in, and I just loved it. And, and it's turned up in all of my books without even me meaning to put it there, <laughs> kind of, it just is there. So Madrigal, Little Madrigal has a lot of that in it too. Nice, cool. Uh, music plays a big part in Mateo's story. What significance does music hold for you personally? I love it deeply and I and I kind of see the world through it a lot like Mateo does. Um, as much as I'm a writer first, um, I was a musician before I was a writer in a lot of ways. And, and then I was a writer before that. So it's, it's always cycling. Um, and I, I kind of turned to music at a very 
clear moment in my early 20s when I felt very keenly the limits of language and that I, you know, just writing couldn't reach some things like words, just, you know, language isn't enough sometimes for different amounts of, of love and of, and of heartache and of sorrow that we have and music can. And, and, and that really um, grabbed me. And, and that's what led me on my path to learn more about music, not in some kind of like need to like say everything, but just recognizing that they were parts of my soul that like stories couldn't get to as much as stories are to me, the most powerful thing in the world. So um, I love music for that. And I also am just someone who has to write to music and kind of move through the world to music um, as much as possible because I love it so much. So you kind of you kind of answered this question because it seems like music and writing are sort of one and the same for you. Like they blend into each other, bleed into each other. But um, can you then talk about how this kind of blend of music and other other sort of parts of Mateo's journey that I don't want to spoil, but how did you sort of blend those two? Was that something you were conscious of based on your own experience of like music and writing kind of blending or? Actually, no, I went into it not really realizing how they would overlap, right? There's this element of Mateo that's a healer and he's not that thrilled about it. He's not really, he's not trying to be a healer, right? But he has right. this power and he has to figure out how to, how to manage it. Um, and in, in some ways that, that mirrors my own story. I, um, did, I never thought of myself as someone that would be in the medical field at all. And somehow I ended up on an ambulance for 10 years um, right. you know, in New York. And some of it was very basically to pay rent. And <laughs> some of it was because I hadn't thought of myself in that, in that capacity. And I wanted to know if I could do it. And it turned out I, I could, and I loved it. But it was a struggle to get there, you know, in some ways. Um, and so, you know, it, it was that. But the, the actual kind of overlap of the two wasn't, was something that happened during the course of writing and, and really even in the course of that moment when it first starts to happen and there's a character who's like, this is how you connect to the world. So use it in this capacity. Um, I mean, that one little piece of wisdom is one that I'm constantly relearning and forgetting and figuring out again, <laughs> but it's such a great thing to, to remember is that like there's entire meditative practices around the idea of, of remembering within your body, like something that you're good at and bringing that energy to something you're not good at <laughs> and using that. So uh, that was a big part of it. Did you ever, when you were on the ambulance, did you ever sort of bring those sides of yourself, the writing, the music into your work with you? I literally, don't tell my supervising officers this, but I literally <laughs> brought the guitar with me on runs sometimes. <laughs> Not all the time, but you know, sometimes we were bored. Like, and we were just, yeah. and there was a guitar we passed around the battalion. And so I played it, some of the other guys played. And sometimes I'd be like, we, we, I think we'd be sitting around the battalion and we'd get a job. I'd be like, you know what, let's bring this <laughs> with me. And, you know, it would be some BS job. The guy would be fine or whatever. And I would like serenade them sometimes on the way to the hospital. <laughs> I love that. So, yes. <laughs> and also, I, I used to write in the back of the ambulance. Like, that's also right. where I kind of got started was, um, you know, just bringing my computer, bringing my laptop to work on a slow shift and getting in my workout. Very nice. But none of the like reluctance that Mateo had, obviously. You no, I, I did like it was a journey to get there for sure, but it was I wasn't fighting it. Um I was I knew it was a part of my journey and I accepted it pretty quickly. It was still a challenge to um learn, you know, what it meant to be face to face with other people's um mortality, you know, so immediately in such a constant and immediate way. But um not even in a bad way, I would say. Like it was something I knew I was 
I knew what I was getting into. I knew that was going to happen. So it's not like it caught me off guard, you know, and, um, and I, I learned a lot from it. Nice. Well, uh, Tia Luisa um, was like a favorite of both Arzu and I, because we both have aunties like that. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm half Indian and the aunties uh, are like everywhere. Yeah. And <laughs> everybody, it's, a, it's a global phenomenon. <laughs> they, they are brutally honest. Right. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. They just, yeah, they tell you stuff. Um, what was it like to step in the mindset of this wise, no nonsense Tia? Yeah, she's another one that you know. Sometimes characters really take off, and you have to respect that. And um, she really did. You know, I didn't totally know what to expect, um, but I knew she was going to be a personality. So I let her kind of run and be that, be whoever she ended up being, and that was really. Um, gratifying as a writer to just see her take on a life of her own and really um, just become herself because she is such a strong personality. Um, she is inspired by several different actual Tia's of mine <laughs> <laughs> uh, who are very much like her and were very much like her. And um, and yeah, you know, up to the dog, right? The little <laughs> parts. <laughs> um, and, and so there's like all these different aspects to her that I wanted to get in there in that both that she is she is badass and she is ridiculous and flamboyant and she is also very wise. And I really, I think those are the most important things is that we often see uh, clowns, you know, and we often see um, wise old characters and stuff. And, and it's, it was important to me for her humanity to have those two things existing simultaneously and not make her just one or just the other. Um, and, and also just make her fully fleshed out as a person. You know, she has, she has a partner she loves and she has uh, just her religious practice and everything else that are really part of who she is. Her rituals of daily life and her rituals of actual worship of Arisha, um, those all needed to be in there. Even though she's a relatively minor character, it was really important that she had all those facets. You mentioned um, when we were speaking that you find yourself quoting Tia Lucia a lot. Um, is there <laughs> one bit of wisdom or just like a funny quote that you find yourself saying more than others? It's when she tells Mateo that um, the fear is a lie. And it was it was just one of those moments when I was writing and I was like, oh, I don't know. I, I know she needs to give him a pep talk, but I don't know what it's going to be. And I don't know how this is all going to work. Um, but the notion that fear is a lie. And then when she expands on it, it's like, it's not a lie because it's not true. Right. Like, because because those things will never, ever happen that you fear. It's that they're not everything. But fear mm -hmm. itself, as soon as it enters the picture, it becomes everything. And man, I needed to hear that, you know, like, especially in the past couple of years, which have been so full of fear. And it, it was very true to me, like fear is a lie in that it takes over and, and just feeling that truth, um, the way that it becomes your whole body, right? And like, and that as you move beyond it, um, it becomes less and less gigantic, it becomes less and less the whole world. And that's the process of moving through fear. And it doesn't mean it doesn't come back, right? It does come back. And that's part of being alive so that was a truth that i kind of knew but had never put in those words and it really felt like it, it came from her the piece about listening which is so fundamental to her character when she says escucha right like that's yeah. really her like main guidance to mateo that was me um myself knowing that i don't listen enough <laughs> especially in the past and when i was mateo's age and and for many years after that um just really like going astray in life because of a failure to listen, you know, and like, I think that's such a crucial, so tiny, but such a major like life lesson, writer lesson, 
whatever creative endeavor you're in, you have to listen. And they don't tell us that in, you know, in writing class, <laughs> like, but that's what you have to do. That's the number one writing skill is listening. So sort of jumping off of um, Tia Lucia. So I noticed there's a lot of Spanish in the book, mm -hmm. sort of peppered in and out. Um, and I think that's something a lot of diaspora kids relate to, you know, having English and your other language mixed in together very sort of seamlessly. So how did you decide sort of how much Spanish to include? And then was there ever a concern that readers won't understand what you're saying? And then because some of it's explained, but not all of it is. Right. So, I mean, I was fine. Right. having studied Spanish, but I was just wondering sort of whether that was ever a consideration of how much of it to explain, how much of it to just let it's it live. in my mind, right? Like I'm definitely, I'm not going to pretend that I don't think about the reader. I feel like writers say that sometimes. I don't think about the reader, I just write. And it's like, okay, <laughs> but that sucks. Like the reader's the person who has to read it, right? Like, yeah. Of course you think about the reader. Um, what you can't do is think about every reader because mm -hmm. you just, you know, you'll just write something really mediocre for everybody, whatever that means. And people will still be mad at you. Um, so I, you know, I do think about like, what are people going to understand? What are they not going to understand? I'm also very aware of like not wanting to just translate everything because it starts to feel really canned. Um, and it doesn't mm -hmm. feel real. Like when people, when bilingual people are around each other, we don't translate. Right. We, right. you know, um, and, and sometimes it means people miss stuff and that's okay. And that's sort of part of also like, the reality of just the experience of culture is that right. you miss stuff. And because of generations, because of white supremacy tearing away our languages, you know, because of all these different things, that's a part of it. And that's also something that the reader can experience. And the great thing is like, you know, you can look it up or not. I think one thing I was clear about is not making those major plot points that mm -hmm. you would have to look up to keep going. Um, something. So whether I was given the context or given the meaning through context, or I was just given the fact that it's not that deep through context um, so that you can keep reading if you want to, or you can make a little note and come back to it later, whatever. Um, those were kind of different ways that I was managing that. Did you get pushback at all on sort of putting less Spanish? No, in fact, um, they, they, um, one thing they flagged was making Tia Lucia speak more Spanish because there are times when she does and times when she doesn't, which was I actually was a little conflicted about that because that's also true of us. You know, I don't mm -hmm. know whether you call it code switching or not. It's just that language runs through us in different ways at different times. And and the editor wants, and editors in general want a consistent voice for a character. But when right. we live around bilingual people, we know there's just moments when it shows up and moments when it goes away. And sometimes it's because there's someone else around and sometimes it's just the way things move. But um, I did like giving her more Spanish um, and as I went through it. Um, just because I think Spanglish is such a vibrant and beautiful language and it was so cool to have someone really embody that even more so. And so, yeah, if anything, it was, it was to the editor's credit, it was bringing in more Spanish, which I love. Nice. Yeah. Stephanie Lurie, a great editor. Um, there's a moment fairly early on when Mateo verbalizes the sense that no matter what, he doesn't belong in his community. Mm -hmm. And I feel like uh, like a lot of kids who are like, children of immigrants or have moved like they they can relate to that yeah How, and like both Arzu and I have felt that growing up and um how did you capture that so well like did you ever feel like you were in his shoes yeah it was I, it, <coughs> excuse me and I, I think like that's one of those things that it's like that Baldwin quote where it's like you think you're all alone in the world and then you open up a book right and like I misquoted it, but something like that. Um, and I remember feeling like 
because I was I had a very particular upbringing, like Jewish and Catholic and, you know, and Cuban and all this other stuff. Um, it felt very singular to feel both inside and outside of my own different cultures. And and then I started talking to people and it's like that's not even a mixed race or mixed culture problem. That's like an everybody problem, right? That's about, like you said, generations, immigration. That's about neighborhoods. That's about gentrification. There's so many layers to that. And we all deal with it in different ways, you know? And, and I think that doesn't make it a wash. That doesn't mean we get to then just be like, oh, well, it's all the same. Everybody has the same problems. No, we still have to deal with the anti-Blackness that's at play in, in Latino communities and, 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 and with the, all the gender problems that are going on everywhere. <laughs> like we still have to deal with those things that divide us and um, those different issues that we allow in. But um, there are consistencies, I think, that are, that are worth talking about because we shouldn't feel alone in, the, in that loneliness because every, so many people have it, not everybody, but so many people go through it and it's such a real thing. And the different ways we go through it are really interesting and really important. And so, you know, for Mateo, it was like um, building into his character this notion that he had really just grown up away from it all and still loved his people so much. Um, there's a moment when he's talking about, like some people have the music in their hearts and he had to have it in his head basically like he had to like learn it from a book but that doesn't make him less than but he has to deal with it right like mm -hmm. it it does separate him if he lets it and if he pretends that he's not and ultimately it's about him really confronting that about himself and also like listening to you know to, shout out to Tia Lucia um listening to what his community is telling him which is not that he's an outsider which is not that he doesn't belong um, which is in fact that like, it's a community of outsiders, right? Like everybody in that community is an outsider on some level and they're all navigating that in very different ways. Yeah. So we, we have been focusing a lot on sort of the, the diaspora aspect of it. And I do want to make it very clear to those listening that there's a lot of like magic in this book. There's a lot of romance. Like it is still that it's got that sort of fantasy adventure aspect to it. But the one thing I want to mention, because this is something I love very dearly is Thank you said you. on Twitter that this is possibly the most romantic book you've written, one of the most romantic books, something I wholeheartedly agree with. Um, we saw a lot of similar comments um, after Midnight Horizon came out, which is also a very romantic book. So, it is. <laughs> so all, both of these books have multiple love stories. Each of them are unique. They're not sort of the same story told three right. or four times over. Um, so like, what is it about romance? Do you enjoy the genre, the tropes? Like... Do you just see that kind of human connection as sort of just as instrumental? Because I feel like a lot of people are very quick to dismiss it. Right. So what is um, it about romance? Man, it's such a good question, I, which I say because I totally don't know the answer. <laughs> There's always been <laughs> Put you romance. on the spot. No, I love it. It's a great. That's good. I mean. Arzy you know. loves romance. I love romance. Genre. Oh, uh, yeah. That's And I do. Too, I, I love like uh, rom-coms and I love um when romance pops in another genre, like when it like pops mm -hmm. out, and you're like, oh man, I'm really in this for the love. I thought I was in it for the cool monsters, but it's actually the love that I'm really here for. Um, you know, going back to Shakespeare, like all of that, like finding these like love stories throughout these other stories is that's really what I love. And that's what I've kind of done for most of my other books has been like, okay, this is a mystery. This is a supernatural mystery and there is a love story in it. And that might be the thread that goes through it. And that might be the kind of secret beating heart of it, but that's not the main focus, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm happy with those choices. I think it just felt like coming up on this book for whatever reason. I don't totally know what it was, but it was like, no, this is a love story. 
And it's a love story with elements of diaspora, with elements of magic, of, of gods, of saints, of demons, you know, all of these. And it's an adventure. Yes, all these things are true. Um, and it's hard as of hearts. It's a love story. And, and that's not and it's not a secret heart. You know, that's like really key to it. And then it was a question of like, well, what is their dynamic? What is what is going on between them? You know, what is their trope even? You know, and the I think the story that's always spoken to me when we think back to kind of these like archetypal moments is is uh, actually Cupid and Psyche. Um, okay. I love that story so much. It's kind of, I think it was kind of like the original enemies to lovers almost because he sent to get her basically by his mom, right? And yeah. he's supposed to shoot her with an arrow so she just falls in love with whatever random thing. But he he gets himself accidentally. <laughs> you played yourself, man, and falls in love and she and they fall in love. And it, it's one of it's it it jumps out at me because it's one of the few Greek myths with a happy ending. But mm-hmm. they go through hell to get there, literally. Like in, in the extended version, you know, Psyche goes all the way down to the underworld, I think, and she's pregnant and it's it's really intense. And I love that story so much. And it pops up in my work all the time without me meaning for it to be there. Um and I think there's elements of that in Ballad and Dagger, which I didn't mean to put in there. But when I step back, I'm like, that's that story. Like these two um, really amazing people are put in opposition to each other and find a way to turn that around. And that really the underlying theme of just every story living within its own opposite is just so strong for these two who are a healer and a destroyer, you know, um, the the kind of... Um, initiated children of these different um entities and they have to figure out you know how to make it work against all odds and and, and survive <laughs> i like I, I didn't even think of um cella and mateo as being like a sort of not exactly eros eros and psyche cupid and psyche but like now that you say it i didn't either. Kind of, like, like you see it right. yeah i think yeah, it's just you know, it, right? if you yeah. love the story it kind of gets woven into it what you're and that's, what what's, that's, so, that's what's so powerful about story is that it just shows up in ways that you're not ready for or trying to do. And then you're like, oh, yeah, that's that, you know, and then uh, just like people will take with Midnight Horizon. Right. It's been so cool because the response is so incredible to that. And, and there's so much readership and it's such an active and engaged community in the higher mm-hmm. public that um, it was just amazing to hear all these different people's takes on it and find stuff that I hadn't put in there and like the fan art and all this stuff. It's like. It really just like story becomes this exponential thing, this thing that grows, this living organic thing. And seeing that happen is like just the greatest thing for an artist. Yeah, like, yeah, like I think it, like a Midnight Horizon, like you said, it's a very active community. So we see a lot of that. And I think it was, it did mean a lot to, I think everybody to sort of have like, you know, the romance is not really the focus of the book. And then the romance is a little more prominent. And then the one right. that's happened in the past and all of that. And- right. Yeah, yeah they were, that was fun because they, I was able to throw in different layers of romance. So while that is a book that has a lot of romance, but I, and it's a romantic book, but I don't consider the romance to be the main through line of it in any way. Yeah, um, yeah. It was fun to be able to have all these different ones to bounce off each other. And they were in real conversation with each other, especially Kansam and Lula and Zine, obviously. Like, mm-hmm. You know, those different relationships happening in totally different time periods, but speaking to each other, like being in conversation. Yeah. And I think that's such a cool you know, opportunity to have. But that was definitely a through line for for Ballad and Dagger. Like the romance is absolutely, central. I would say, crucial to it. Absolutely central to the yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what if, if anything, can you tease about Outlaw Saints too? 
first of all, I need a title. <laughs> I don't have a title yet. I was joking on Twitter about calling it book two. <laughs> this yeah, just number two. <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm finishing choice. it right now. I'm really excited about it. I will say this about it, and and I and I love this about it. It, it was really hard to write. It's one of the hardest books I've ever written. Um, in part because it just went in directions I wasn't expecting it to, and they were dark. Like it's a dark book, um, and, and I love that for that book. It's what it needed to be, um, but that also made it difficult. Like I I care about these characters a lot at this point, and. Um, I think with something like Star Wars, like with Midnight Horizon, I, I really knew where it was going. And so none of it caught me off guard, you know, because we'd been planning that larger story beat for a long time. Uh, with with the second Outlaw Saints book, I knew the basics of it and I had an outline and everything and certain directions that it went were just like caught me off guard. And it was just grueling in some ways to write, like painful physically almost. Um, but in a way that I knew it was right, not in a way where I was like, because there's, there's a kind of discomfort you have as a, as a writer where you're like, this is wrong, right? And you have to, that's a, that's a terrible feeling because you sometimes have to revamp an entire story. Um, if you're paying attention, you catch it early enough. But in this, it wasn't wrong. It was right. And that's why it was hard because I had to see it through. Um, and I love how it came out. I, I'm, I'm so excited about it. And, and even at this point, I'm at a point where it's done. I'm just kind of adding what I think of as like almost grace notes, you know, the parts that, kind of make everything click together, which is really fun um, when you finally get there. So I'm enjoying that about it, because especially because it was such a hard write. Like it really put me through the ringer in a way I don't think any other book has um, for various reasons, but I'm, I can't wait for people to read it. We take off directly from the last moment of book one, literally, oh, like literally the next moment. If not a little overlap, it's it's like ba bang. So you know, some sometimes you jump a year, sometimes you who knows what. This is like second by second, we're just jumping right back into the action, and it is action packed. I can say that too, because the cliffhanger was rude. Um, <laughs> good job, man. Necessary, but it was rude. Um, <laughs> although I love the sort of. I guess this isn't really a spoiler, but the sort of almost lyrical way the ending is written, where it's kind of changing. The word just escaped me. Um, not point of view, like the yeah, the way it's being narrated changes mm -hmm. towards yes. the end. Yes, which, it does. Yes. Yeah, There's nice. more of that ahead. We, what's, oh, good. What's, what's fun about this book, book two, is that we, we learn a lot about the past. And mm -hmm. I, I was really interested in trying to do that. There was a point where I was wondering if it might even jump back and forth, like in time, like show us the past and how it connected to the present. And we didn't do all that. But um I found a better solution to getting getting into the history of things because this is a series that's so much about how history moves with us in the present tense and how ignoring it is what destroys us, right? And like right. you know, um, that's what the story is about. And so we needed to see a lot of this stuff in in contrast to what the dominant narrative of Samadrigal is. You know, Samadrigalanos have a story that they tell about their history. And mm -hmm. a lot of it isn't true. Um, and, you know, they have to deal with that now. <laughs> and so, <laughs> some, but someone dealing with that is finding out what is true, right? I had so many feelings about that, but that's like nitty gritty spoilers. So <laughs> I won't. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. I won't, I won't. I won't ruin it for people who want to discover it's for yourself. Too, you know? but... <laughs> it's an interesting topic. Like that's that's why it's in there. Like it's it's so much what we're going through today as a country on so many levels and, and as a, and as different movements are going through it. 
just think it's really something we have to talk about. Is it okay if I mention it now? Mm-hmm. So the secret of the secret history of San Madrigal is that mm-hmm. they live in this belief that their ancestors never participated in the slave trade. And then they, among other things, and then they find yeah. out, like Mateo finds out that that is in fact not true. And that part has been sort of, sort of concealed. So I guess in the beginning, I was quite thrown because I was like, okay, they never did that. So, and somehow they managed to import all of the downside of white supremacy with them right. anyway. And that's something that jumped out to me because you do see that in cultures that maybe didn't participate right. in that. Like my own still imports that idea of like fairer skin is somehow right. better. Right. Like what that, Im- what that implies. So I just want to know if we could talk about that a little bit more, like sort of, I'm struggling to phrase this now. Yeah. <laughs> sort well, of what the, what the, in, not inspiration, but sort of how did that come about this sort of concealed history and like what it means for San Madrigal? Definitely. I, I I think one important point is like just recognizing that anti-blackness is a global phenomenon and, and it's very strategically, people deploy it very strategically across cultures and import it very strategically to cultures. And that's a big part of it. Um, the, <clears throat> there's a moment in Shadow Shaper, uh, my first YA, where um, the aunt, the the she's like the anti-Tia Lucia. She's a, the other kind of Tia. <laughs> Who's like extremely anti-black and just really petty and 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 um, obnoxious on every level. And um, she says something like, "I hope she's she's bothering Sierra, the main character, about whether or not she has a boyfriend." And she says something like, "I hope he's not. Make sure he's not um, darker than the uh, underside of your foot or your palm or something like that." And um, people across the world have reacted to that line and said, "Like I've heard that." And it's not just in this country, it's literally global, that that one weird way of putting something becomes this like, just truth, this anti-black truth that that, that crosses different cultures, right? Like talk about globalization and, um, and how messed up that is, you know, and just that that response was so vivid from so many different cultures. Um, it really struck me. So there's a part of that is a, th- a thread being pulled all the way to San Madrigal. The other piece is like, you know, that anti-Blackness is so deep in communities that consider themselves to be rebel communities and, and outside of the norm. And, you know, whether that's in like artistic traditions, politically rebellious, um, socialist movements, Cuba, you know, like there's so many examples of it where it's like, man, you were right on so many levels. Like this anti-imperialist movement is really where it's at. And yet, like you haven't dealt with anti-Blackness, like we as a mm-hmm. community. Um, haven't dealt with anti-blackness. Um, so it's Im- I think it's important to deal with the fact that it's everywhere and that honestly, like they could have had it without um, being invested, if actually invested in slavery or in the other um, historical problems. It's very possible that they just had people show, because, you know, people are constantly coming and going on San Madrigal, um, even though it's hidden. It's just, you know, there's movement. So that could have happened. Um, but also... There's the truth that like we're constantly as a country in the United States trying to pretend that, you know, we were never involved in that or if we were, it wasn't that big a deal or whatever. And you see, you know, slaver cultures all over the world who who are still profiting from that legacy, pretending that it wasn't that deep or that it didn't matter or that they didn't do it at all, you know. And that itself, too, is just such an important story that we neglect to tell or we tell badly or we um, dip and dive around and don't deal with. And that's also what's consistently destroying us, I think, as a community today. And why anti-Blackness is so prevalent is because people won't face up to how ugly that history has been. 
And mm-hmm. so that was there. And, and again, particularly in like leftist movements and, and movements that consider themselves outside of the norm or, or, or subversive, uh, it's still a problem and we still have to deal with it. And even more so if we're supposed to be about justice and truth and all these other <laughs> these lofty ideas, but you're not talking about, you know, all the really troublesome aspects that are within us. I think like that really hits the nail on the head because they it's not that they don't talk about it at all. It's that right. they go, well, other people didn't. Other people know it's wrong and we never did. So they know it's wrong. Right. Objectively oh, yeah. speaking, they know it's wrong, but they won't talk about their own involvement. So it, it's sort of like we see in perhaps very well-meaning movements where there's that acknowledgement of wrongdoing, but we're not like that, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's what's so dangerous about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, the entire San Madrigal identity is built around the fact that it's wrong, but also that they, you know, nunca conquistado, right? They had nothing to do with it. They were never conquered, so they never participated in it, right? And it's like, yeah. you know, it's like you hear people dip and dodge around it. You know, I think the the identity of, of brownness itself is really complex complicated and complicit in different ways, you know, in the subjugation of, of black people. And we have to deal with that actively. And this book is a lot of that is trying to look at it really square in the face and also look at ways that folks don't deal with it and, and take those apart and show the, the fallout of that, you know, the consequences yeah. of that, because there are real consequences and people have to fight to survive because of those consequences. And then there are those that don't that know that dealing with the consequences will come at huge personal loss, and that's maybe why they don't want to deal with it. Right, right. Or it's just uncomfortable, it. right? Or it's just yeah. uncomfortable. Sometimes it's not even that deep. It's just like ah, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about it, so I won't. Yeah. And so you know, we get um, centuries and centuries of people dipping and diving around it. Yeah. Gaslighting. So winding down. Other than Outlaw Saints, too. What else is next for you? So great question. Um, there's more High Republic ahead for sure, which is really exciting. The uh, phase two begins soon. When is it? October. In, in it October. In the fall. Yes, October. Thank you. Um, phase two begins in October. There's more High Republic adventures coming, and uh, <laughs> there's more. There's lots of great things coming down with the High Republic. Like I genuinely cannot wait for people to get to it, and I can't wait to write it. Like just just having been in so many planning meetings recently and just all the things that we're we've got in the kitchen i just can't wait so that um i have a graphic novel coming out in uh, next year i believe uh it's called death's day i co-wrote it with a friend of mine malik duncan and it's this really really wild and and amazing story uh, it's urban fantasy mystery type vibes uh death comes back to earth every thousand years to spend one day with its child and the child is kidnapped at the beginning of the book. And so this uh, mysterious organization has to kind of leap into action to set things back into balance while death is on the rampage trying to find its kid. So it's a really, really fun story. Um, it's a really wild adventure, Death's Day, that comes out from Abrams. And I'm sure I'm forgetting something. But uh, Ballad and Dagger is everything right now. And that is out today. So hey. yes. Today! Woohoo! <laughs> So, um, so if our listeners want to find you on social media, where is the best place to do so? So I'm on Twitter at DJ Older. That's where I'm most active for various reasons. <laughs> but I am also active on Instagram um, at Daniel Jose One. And I'm trying to get back to TikTok. I miss it. I love TikTok a lot. I just haven't um, had the wherewithal being a new father to like get it together and like 
<laughs> make a TikTok again. But I plan to, especially because I finally got a new phone. So my uh, phone camera isn't trash anymore. So yes, TikTok <laughs> is um, at Daniel Jose Older, my full name. Um, but the best place to find me and all of that stuff, if you couldn't remember it, is my website, which is danieljoseolder.net, my full name, danieljoseolder.net. You can find books. Uh, you can actually find a writing class, two writing classes I have posted online um, that are me on video talking through different aspects of uh, fundamentals of narrative. And there's a blog on there from my ambulance days. Um, that was kind of how I learned how to write. So all of that stuff is on there and you can find it. And I have, you can find all that down in the show notes. I will drop that in there. So Daniel, thank you so much again for, for coming on and talking to us. It was great to talk to you guys. Thank Take you. care.